thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Download the app today. You're listening to Wellness Women Radio with women's health experts, Dr. Ashley Bond, the pregnancy and birthing guru, and the queen of hormone imbalances, the period whisperer herself, Dr. Andrea Huddleston. They're raising the bar for women's health by bringing you the most up-to-date health and wellness information to live your best life. Now, on to the show. This episode of Wellness Women Radio is very proudly brought to you by Dinner Twist. Dr. Ashley and I want to let you in on a little secret of how we maintain our healthy whole foods lifestyle with very little time. And one of those ways is actually with Dinner Twist. So they plan, they shop, they deliver everything to our door to take all of the guesswork out of having really healthy meals for dinner each night. I love Dinner Twist because they are a locally family-owned business here in Perth in Western Australia, and all of their produce is locally sourced and seasonal. So they are really invested in all of their suppliers as well, which is absolutely amazing. Everything is so fresh. Ashley and I both get the wholesome box, which is naturally gluten and dairy-free as well, and is very consistent with a paleo-type lifestyle as well. So it's you know completely consistent with you know, the way that we want to eat and want to feed our loved ones too. This is also how I trick Dean into thinking that I can actually cook. So seriously, if I can do it, everybody can trust me. And their recipes are so delicious. They also have other options apart from the wholesome box. So they have a family box for bigger size families an express box. If you're really short on time, as well as a vegan box too. Now we would love to give you the opportunity for you to actually try dinner twist and realize how healthy, how delicious and how fresh it is but also how much easier this is going to make life as well. So we have a special promo code for you, and that is going to give you $35 off your first box. And that is WWR for Wellness Women Radio. Um, So we would love you to uh, try for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but let me know what you think. Without further ado, ladies, onto the show. Hey, wonderful listeners. Thank you so much for joining us to Wellness Room Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And uh, ladies and, you know, for the gentlemen listening as well, please make sure that you are following us on all social media platforms, which is The Wellness Women on Facebook, The Wellness Women Official on Instagram, Dr. Ashley Bond on everything. And I am Dr. Andrea.xo and The Period Whisperer on Facebook. Um, and Ash, just recently you sort of checked up on our like amazing um, – uh, what do we call them? Um, the reviews. The, the, reviews. Yeah, the reviews from the podcast. And so thanks to everyone who's been on Spotify and Apple and uh, and leaving reviews. I just, I don't think, I wish it was a platform where we could actually like say thank you directly back to you. Um, I know. Just for the lovely things that you're writing and uh, for that constant support because I, it was funny that we both said I hadn't checked in in such a long time. It was, it's really humbling. It's a real privilege to be part of your journey uh, in health. So getting that feedback uh, that there's something we say and do that touches on, you know, an opportunity for you to grow, learn, explore, mm. um, to possibly see, you know, different avenues and opportunities in your own health journeys. Um, that that thrills us to bits. Uh, we've always done this as just an opportunity for ourselves to stay sharp on the research and to produce a bit of a library for our, our clients, but also realizing that there's a, a beautiful big community out there, you know, across Australia, but also across the world that um, is looking for this information that wants to yeah. see that 
sort of blend of East meets West conversation that's also deep diving into the literature, the current literature, not stuff that, you know, is cherry-picked and, and basically translated into old is new stuff, which yeah, we do see a lot. I'm like, oh, and this is why today's episodes come about, right? Because we've done this episode way back when uh, we sort of started. It was one of our sort of early topics because it came up so often. But since then, there's been, you know, big changes in research, information, um, evidence, clinical recommendations. And I'm just really excited to dive into it again because it's so prevalent. And what I'm talking about is polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS. And, you know, today this is like our jam. This is our hormonal space that we love talking. And I think with regards to PCOS, you know, my own personal journey is something that um, I can relate to anyone who's listening going through this, anyone you know who's going through this. um, It's been my journey too. And I'm very grateful that thanks to great mentors and great guidance, I came through that journey um, in a way that's produced greater health and greater vitality and greater, you know, abundance in my life thanks to good, sound, research-driven recommendations. Mm, excellent. Um, that's a great little um, sort of lead in, Ash. Um, and the different kind of spin we're going to put on this PCOS episode tonight is to dive into what the four different types of polycystic ovarian syndrome are because a lot of women have just been diagnosed with PCOS and at the moment statistically it's up to around 21% of women um, of reproductive age are being told that they have PCOS and I think that this is significantly and overdramatically overdiagnosed. Um, I absolutely don't believe that almost a quarter of the population has polycystic ovarian syndrome, but I think that that comes back to this gray area of diagnostic criteria without a um, sort of central focus or um, a consensus of what that should be. Um, Just for numbers though, even if it was 10%, I was reading some of the research references, it's up to 200 million women worldwide. Yeah, if it's even if it's just ten percent, so that's significant numbers. This is affecting a lot of women in some way. Uh, so yeah, it's it's kind of fun to see that. Yeah, quarter of the population, probably a bit high, but I'd say ten percent's a, a fairly good, you know, punch at the numbers because. How many women have metabolic issues? And I think that that's the point. Like I do agree that there probably is about almost, you know, a quarter of women who do have some sort of metabolic reproductive syndrome or, Mm. you know, which we can shorten to MRS, which a lot of, um, you know, reproductive experts are sort of trying to shift the focus from this diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome, which really discounts the metabolic components and the Mm. undertones that are part of the etiology of PCOS in the first place. Um, and it just kind of focuses on um, ovaries that are multi-cystic. Um, and we'll we'll sort of unpack that a little bit more so that that makes a bit more sense. But um, to go back a couple of steps, PCOS is a metabolic condition which causes hormonal imbalances. It's not the other way around. Um, There is a diagnostic criteria that is required to diagnose this officially, but there's also four different individual types of PCOS. It's not just one homogenous sort of condition. And if you understand the type of PCOS that you have, then you'll understand more about what the clinical signs and symptoms are with your type of PCOS and how the um, recommendations and the treatment 
for you specifically can be a little bit more individualized um, and what those driving factors were in the first place. Yes, and this goes far beyond just recommending the PCOS diet. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, this it's such an oversimplified way of approaching a very complicated, uh, you know, conditions. Uh, and I say conditions because it's really varied, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and typically to diagnose a woman with polycystic ovarian syndrome, classically so many women would come in and just say that they've been told that they have multiple follicles on their ovaries that has been picked up via ultrasound um, or Maybe they were struggling with some weight loss and so their doctor has just told them that, yes, um, this is because you have PCOS. And then it doesn't really follow an official diagnostic criteria. And in my opinion, we need to have three things. So we need to have lab evidence, so blood test evidence of elevated androgens. So elevated testosterone, often that will be accompanied by low sex hormone binding globulin. There might be um, an elevated free androgen index on their blood tests as well. We might also see an elevated luteinizing to follicular stimulating hormone ratio on their bloods too. So that's one thing. So we need blood test evidence of elevated androgens. There also has to be a clinical picture of something like hirsutism, so with acne, male pattern hair growth, um, whether or not that's along the jawline, the upper lip, they could get um, sort of thick black hairs around the nipples and sort of other areas as well. Um, That might also be accompanied with hair loss too. And then, and this is probably the most important part, it is also with symptoms of irregular cycles um, and and ovulatory cycles. And classically, it's usually about less than six periods a year, um, but it can really vary. Like some women may only have two periods a year. Some may... Um, have regular-ish cycles that that are just a bit longer. So they might fall into the sort of 40 or 50-day cycles rather than um, being that sort of classic kind of 28 to 30-day cycle as well. So those are the three things that we look for. And ultrasound evidence of it as well, um, you know, is kind of irrelevant because there's also um, research that shows that um, there's actually no evidence that the presence of polycystic ovaries, so multiple follicles in the ovaries, um, without any other endocrine or metabolic features doesn't really have any particular health complications or implications that we're aware of. Um, so very healthy, normally ovulating women can have multi-cystic ovaries. It's amazing, isn't it? Because when you think about evolutionary biology, it's not uncommon that women do have multiple you know, follicles forming in the ovaries at any given time. We look at environment, stress responses, like there's lots of reasons for this. So, um, you know, I, I sort of went down the rabbit hole reinvestigating some of the things that I know and the things that I'm interested in. And, of course, I'm always looking at how the body adapts to the current environment. That's just kind of my my jam. I just find it really fascinating to go, how do we live in this ancient body, you know, this adaptive uh, ecosystem we have, and why isn't it adapting to the current environment well? Like, why are these metabolic conditions on the rise? Why is chronic disease on the rise? Why is, you know, chronic inflammation on the rise? Like, all of these things don't make sense to me. Why have we got a sicker population than any time in history? And this is funny because PCOS fits into this category, doesn't it, in regards to the four types of Mm. PCOS. So let's run through those because when you start to unpack these four types, you suddenly go, oh, this is so interesting. This is almost like a failure of adaptation, failure of adaptation to Mm. the current environmental stresses that we're experiencing, both, you know, prenatally, um, post 
you know, postnatally in terms of infancy and as our development as women throughout our lifetimes. Um, that journey is, is continuous and it's something that we need to explore at each age and stage in our life because it's not just a condition of young women. Um, you know, I mm. meet women in their 40s that have suddenly been diagnosed with PCOS, which is quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ash, let's go through what those four types are. So, um, the first one and the most common that we see, um, and I think this probably accounts for, oh gosh, more than 50% of, um, PCOS cases, probably more like 70%. And that is insulin resistant PCOS. Um, and this is usually, and and I say, um, it's the most common because this is fits that picture of they have elevated insulin levels or hyperinsulin insulin oh my gosh can't say that at this time of night but you know what i mean we've got elevated insulin um which can be picked up on blood test results they might have elevated glucose levels on blood tests or uh high levels of that hemoglobin a1c as well um With the elevated insulin, it also then creates the whole hormonal um, milieu um, of change that happens from there, and it drives up androgen levels as well, which will then have that flow-on effect to their excess hair um, growth with male pattern hair loss and acne and everything else along the way. Um, So... I also think that um, it was so funny, um, Ash, that you talked about the environmental factors because I actually think that insulin-resistant PCOS is an epigenetic change as well because we see this so much more commonly in women who've had mothers or grandmothers who've been through famine. Mm -hmm. And it's this is that... Um, tri-generational impact of, um, you know, health changes because when you've had a mother who has um, been starving or been through famine or um, really malnourished, then that offspring will have this um, genetic predisposition to be able to store energy really effectively. Mm -hmm. And it's a survival mechanism. And I just think that that's so fascinating. And I wonder if all of these women who have insulin-resistant PCOS also had mothers who were in, you know, the 50s, 60s or 70s um, who idolised the twiggy sort of picture, the everyone was stick rake thin, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that was the idealistic body type at that stage. And is that now what we're seeing in this current population of all these insulin-resistant PCOS women? Um, I just, you know, that that's just a theory that I have at the moment. Well, it's not a theory. It's it's definitely bounded around in the scientific community when they're also looking at things like um, the in utero exposure to higher androgens, yes. which in, you know, I hate to say rat studies because I hate the fact that they use animals, but anyway, they do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've found that that has produced this um, sort of hyperobulation um response to the in utero exposure to increased antigens. Now, that's occurring because of increased stress. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting that, you know, some of this uh, connection is quite predictable, um, that we're seeing a better understanding of the the why behind all of this, not just you're eating bad food, it's all your fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So how many women feel the blame and responsibility for their PCOS diagnosis? You're just overweight, you know, that's why you've got PCOS Mm -hmm. Um, or other way around. Oh, you've got PCOS. We don't know why. And that's why you're overweight. It it doesn't give us a good answer. It doesn't really explain the problem at hand. Um, So I definitely find it fascinating to look at that and say, okay, well, is there anything we can control? You know, there's lifestyle induced uh, changes. There's so many ways we can help with that. So let's talk about some strategies for women who might 
have been told they have insulin-resistant PCOS. Mm. You know, and the best way to find that out is to test. Test, yeah. don't guess, is uh, our general approach to most things that we talk about. And that's just about getting your blood test done, you know, getting mm. a fasting glucose test done, um, getting, like you said, the hemoglobin A1C test done so that you can see whether or not uh, you have a confirmed insulin-resistance PCOS. Mm. Any other method, any other guesswork is really not accurate enough. Uh, so make sure you get mm. tested and then from there decide, okay, is it insulin-resistant PCOS or is it something else? Um, so, you know, start where you are. Now, there's some really great work. I know Dr. Lara Bryden's done a lot of work on this as well. Um, so it's really quite good to go through that sort of flowchart exercise of looking, okay, this yes, no, this yes, no. So if you're not sure, there's um, some great work with her. You do this as well, Andrew, with your clients, no doubt. Um, it's just a sort of a logical way of trying to deduct and reduce the problem down to something that's actually um, diagnosable and therefore specific recommendations and guidance can be given for each of these things. Because um, I know when I was going through it all those years ago, it really wasn't, none of this was discussed. None of this is considered. It's just like, you've got PCOS, we can see 36 cysts on your left ovary. Um, no, you're not fat and, oh, you've got a bit of acne, so go on the pill and take metformin. Like that is mm -hmm. the grand total of the information I received. And you know what, Ash, <laughs> I don't actually think it's much better, um, to be honest. No, it no, it's, it hasn't it's true. Well, that's why we're here. That's why we're exploring this. We're trying to uh, help women get the information they need so that uh, they can make better choices because I know it was just hard horrified when I was told you may never have kids. Um, so there's no doubt about that generational thing too. My grandmother was uh, a classic example, didn't fall pregnant with her first child until her late 30s or early 40s um, mm. at a time where they had accepted not having children because they'd been together for a long time. They were in that war era, uh, went to war, came back from war, couldn't have children, kind of accepted it, which is why my mum my and her brother are the very, very, very youngest of all the cousins. You know, they kind of like mm. fell off the back because they were so late to the game. It was almost like, unusual in that era to have women in their 40s having kids. It would have been um, so un unusual. Unless it's their 15th child. Like, yes. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so you know, and then, you know, my mum said the same thing that she at first thought, oh, it's going to be difficult because her mum had difficulty, but um, she hadn't had any regular cycles, so she couldn't even guess when she was ovulating. Uh, mm. Fortunately for her, she did conceive uh, fairly easily. So, yeah, you're right. There is that, that intergenerational um, response, and I think that's uh, a really worthwhile thing looking at when it comes to things like insulin resistance, PCOS, I believe there's that familial uh, lineage involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you do think that you might have insulin resistant PCOS um, or look any sort of PCOS as a standardized testing process, I you absolutely need to have an androgen studies done, um, which mm. should include a calculated free testosterone, free androgen index, um, total testosterone, DHEA, insulin, hemoglobin A1C, as well as your fasting glucose levels, ideally. Um, and then I would pair that with, you know, other hormones and everything else sort of around that. And it also hopefully will also include DHEA and um, your inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP so that we can then differentiate from there if you have other types of PCOS. Um, now, I always like to um, also check other hormones to see if ovulation is happening as well, but I think we're getting a little bit outside of the spectrum of what's sort of relevant right now. But write those things down and discuss that with your primary care practitioner because those are the things that should be looked at um, really commonly and should be part of this diagnostic criteria as well. Well, 
If you've got insulin-resistant PCOS, um, usually from a lifestyle perspective, absolutely increasing your exercise will help. Increasing weight-bearing exercise will help. Um, That helps to decrease insulin resistance, helps to make essentially more pathways for that glucose to enter um, the cell. Um, The dietary changes that are required are king here, which means essentially like a low-carb diet, avoiding, you know, highly processed, high sugar foods um, and also making sure that you're reducing stress and everything else along the way so that you're not getting um, you know elevated insulin from all of those sorts of factors and there are some key supplementation um, options here that I would recommend as well and when we're looking at um, support mechanisms for PCOS and in particular insulin resistant PCOS. Things like inositol can be really helpful. Um, zinc, um, licorice, white peony, um, even dim has been shown to be helpful, um, for these sort of circumstances. And I also like to use sort of combinations of magnesium, taurine and chromium as well. Um, I know that's probably a lot of information all in one go, but we'll cycle back to this again. <laughs> Yeah, and this is a time to be looking at our stress responses to exercise as well. This is totally. usually when I say to women, look, drop the the long, you know, cardio sessions, drop the the intense cardio down and target yourself on specific, you know, lean muscle mass weight training. So increasing the weight loads, reducing those sets, just making sure that you're actually building muscle mass without that sort of metabolic stress that's mm-hmm. caused from the long cardio. So I find a lot of women who have this insulin resistant PCOS, it's kind of the category that I fit into, which is high performance, lots and lots of training, high training mm-hmm. loads, um, and really just putting their system into that stress point, which is then causing that androgen um, excess, causing that mm-hmm. inflammation, causing that cascade towards internal resistance. Yes. Um, and that's really the, the kind of crux of it. This is where you say, well, how can you know an athlete athlete have insulin resistant PCOS they're so athletic Um, and that was my classic picture which I found really interesting later on to understand that and go ha so that makes more sense now like I wasn't overweight so I didn't fit Mm. that didn't tick that box Um, but now that I look at it you know I really did have that combination of that insulin resistant inflammatory um, PCOS so dealing with the lifestyle factors reducing the stress and even reducing my training load was one of the key things to improve uh, my health my fertility at that point. So um, it's always counterintuitive, like, hang on, exercise is going to help this, but too much exercise is going to make this stay around, which is – which is hard for someone to get their head around. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's so true. Um, And it's like that Goldilocks effect, right? You need to be exercising in a certain way to help improve um, and and decrease that excess insulin, but then not tipping yourself over the edge where you're stressing Mm. your body, which means that you're then dumping blood sugar into your bloodstream and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Dumping sugar into your bloodstream, I should say. Okay. The next type of PCOS is is an inflammatory type of PCOS. And you'll remember from the podcast episodes that we've done on the insulin inflammation connection that when um, your system is chronically inflamed, whether or not that is from, um, you know, certain types of foods that don't agree with you, um, 
you know, whether it's from stress as well, um, autoimmune conditions that haven't been addressed, um, if there's any sort of underlying infections or anything along those lines that are causing your inflammatory markers to be elevated, it then also increases insulin and your testosterone or your androgens at the same time. Um so saying, yeah, it's just like, oh, dude's coming home soon. The dog's gonna go crazy. So I know. You're like, oh, is he is he, I, is he coming home? <laughs> I just, no, I saw um, some lights in the driveway, but it's not him, so that's good. Uh, we've um, got, our listeners don't have to hear the dog dog uh, chorus just yet. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> it's so noisy, aren't they? They're hilarious. Just, I feel so sorry for oh. our neighbours sometimes. Luckily, we don't have people too close, but anyway. Yeah. Um, on, that, on that list as well with the inflammatory PCOS, you've got those environmental triggers, the xenoestrogens, exactly. the endocrine-disrupting compound, compounds, chemicals. Um, you know, And this is where if people have been diagnosed, with Hashimoto's or rheumatoid arthritis, any of those inflammatory joint conditions. You know, for me, the ones that tick this box are the, the women that also say things like, you know, I get headaches, I've got chronic bloating, yes. um, there's lots of skin issues, you know, the, the eczema, allergies, psoriasis, anything in those sort of inflammatory skin conditions, um, joint and muscle pains. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're chiropractors, we see a lot of women with coming with you know, body pains, but this is that systemic joint muscle pain. Oh, I've got a sore shoulder and a sore back and a sore knee and two sore feet. And last week it was my hands and this week it's my, you know, elbows, like this constant sort of systemic sign of inflammation. Um, and those things really for me are that, that okay, so we're not just looking at potentially insulin resistance, we're looking at a chronic inflammatory source here. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we address the inflammation and that's a slightly different recommendation there. Exactly. So to address the underlying root causes of this, the first place we always start is looking at any food triggers. So are there any potential food sensitivities or things that you are intolerant to that you're regularly consuming that is causing this elevated inflammation? This might be different for everyone, but of course, the most common irritants that we see is obviously gluten and dairy. dairy. (laughs) And then we go down that cascade of, you know, if you're having too much refined sugar, um, you know, and, and anything else that might just not be suiting you. So the um, I guess treatment strategy we use for this is an anti-inflammatory type diet, as well with removing any of those other irritants, like you mentioned, the environmental toxins, the um, endocrine disrupting chemicals that it might be in our personal care products and our, um, you know, the other things that we put on our skin um, or in our hair and everything else. And we'd also be looking at using natural anti-inflammatory agents like omega-3 fatty acids, um, you know, things like turmeric, um, other antioxidant-like agents like even NAC or N-acetylcysteine um, can work really, really well for the inflammatory type of PCOS. And with this one as well, I always look at um, liver function, you know, mm. just really making sure that our organs are de- detoxification uh, are efficient. So addressing any, say, um, oral dysfunction. This is where mm. I look at microbiome, you know, so you're looking at that gut inflammatory uh, mm. connection. So we're looking at any signs that could be, you know, causing that systemic um, illness, so to speak. Mm. There's the things for me, I'm always looking at, okay, how do we excrete, you know, toxins, looking mm-hmm. at liver, looking at um, urination, fecal elimination, looking at skin, you're looking at breath. So you're really mm-hmm. looking at that whole, you know, top to tail um, digestive tract to make sure things are working well. And uh, anytime they're not, then in order to 
deal with this chronic inflammation, you really have to get down to that root, root cause recovery. So for me, gut healing comes into this part in a huge way. Yes, great. And this is normally on blood tests where we would see elevated inflammatory markers like CRP or C-reactive protein, mm-hmm. um, but they may have normal androgen levels. So that's something to be really conscious of. Yeah, the one thing I think a lot of women don't realise, um, I remember reading this paper talking about the, the etiology of PCOS related to the dysbiosis in the gut microbiota. Mm. And what's really fascinating there is that the reason they hypothesise this being such a big player, and look at contemporary diets, right? We are destroying our, our gut microbiome, mm-hmm. whether it be through our lack of, you know, colonisation because mum had C-sections and, you know, there's just so many layers to this. Um, but it's looking at how the increased gastrointestinal permeability um, initiates this chronic inflammatory response, which triggers off insulin resistance, the hyperandrogenism, and that's really, you know, the crux of why we can heal PCOS mm-hmm. through the gut and uh, and why so many people will see reference to, you know, heal your gut, heal your life. Like there's just that beautiful connection and opportunity to improve it. So, ladies, if you have gut issues, if you have, you know, known dysbiosis, you have bad breath, if you have, you know, mm-hmm. um, poor stool formation, runny, runny stools, constipation, then the gut is a problem and this is something we need to look at. Yeah, and Ash, I remember along the lines of that microbial endocrinology is I, I think from memory, if a woman has overgrowth of something like Klebsiella, um, mm. then that increases independently androgens, which I just think is so fascinating. Absolutely um, amazing. Uh, okay, so that is inflammatory PCOS. The next mm-hmm. one is, and I think that these are sort of in order of um, frequency. frequency that I see yeah. in practice yeah, as well. Great. And the next one is post Post pill, yeah. post pill PCOS. Yeah. Um, so obviously, when you're taking oral contraceptives, um, it, part of their job is to actually suppress androgens. Um, so they do not really allow for the production of any of your normal testosterone or anything else along the way. They usually increase sex hormone binding globulin because um, that is just in response to the very high levels of estrogen, like synthetic versions obviously of estrogen and progestogens that are in those oral contraceptives. And then when you stop the pill, it's like this big hormone withdrawal and then often one of two things will happen. So you'll get this huge androgen surge because um, that has been suppressed for such a long time. So you'll get this big surge in androgens and the ovaries will just start really producing lots and lots of um, testosterone as well as stimulating that from other parts of the body that makes that too. Or nothing happens and you just don't get um, this proper sort of maturation or reconnection of that hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. So we're not getting that proper ovulation that's happening, but we've still had that sort of androgen surge. And so the body doesn't not quite know what to do with it. Then when we come off oral contraceptives, we initially have that high sex hormone binding globulin. Often it will drop. So then we're not binding and using and clearing those hormones in the same way. Um, so this is again, like really, really common that happens. Um, in women who've been on the pill. Sometimes it can occur for six to 12 months after stopping, just depending on what type of pills they've been on and how long they've been on them for. Um, But I do find that this is one of the easiest forms of of PCOS to actually um, change, as Mm. long as hopefully they had a normal cycle before they went on the pill. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is the problem, right? Because we're putting young women who are not cycling normally onto the pill for an indefinite period of time. And unfortunately, we have no baseline for their, you know, hormonal balances. They never actually achieved regular menstrual cycles. And suddenly, you know, we, we come off the pill at the age of 25, 27. And, you know, it's anyone's guess as to how that body's going to regulate because essentially, you know, it's surpassed the body production levels for such a long period of time. And these hormone cascades are a negative feedback loop and suddenly we've disrupted that and the body really doesn't have a baseline to return to. So I always consider, you know, this idea as well of the chronic depletion um, that occurs, Mm. nutrient deficiencies, um, the altered liver function, the altered gut function. um, These are all key players in how quickly a woman returns to regular cycling after coming off the pill. So. Um, just as we discussed with the inflammatory PCOS, the same approach is how do we improve Mm. liver function? How do we recover the gut health that's been damaged? And then testing for any deficiencies that might be present Mm. so we can start to restore, you know, the body, start to bring in things like zinc, magnesium. Um, Again, you know, you probably use all these things the same way. For me, omega-3 fatty acids, like just Mm -hmm. rebuild the body, rebuild the body's natural ability to produce sex hormones. Yes, exactly. Um, I also really try and make sure that they're getting enough fiber and protein so we can try and Mm. regulate that production of sex hormone binding globulin. Um, And also this type of PCOS can be quite distressing for women because a lot of the time women go on oral contraceptives to treat their acne as a teenager and then when they come off the pill and look granted it can be very effective for that when they actually do come off the pill then they get that androgen surge and their acne comes back with a vengeance Mm. and that can be really distressing for women and it can be really hard for them to actually be patient about that as well but it is actually like a very common occurrence and is quite um in my opinion easy to address and you've just exactly as you said ash you've got to replenish the stuff that has been missing for so long that's been depleted by the pill and then try and get that regular ovulation happening which will naturally lower those androgens in the first place Um, and obviously that will coincide with the things that you said like the zinc your magnesium um, any of the other sort of uh, tools that we've mentioned as well in particular like even inositol or something along those lines as well Mm. and also like you mentioned distressing because acne comes back but also distressing because a lot of women are looking to increase their fertility in opportunities for you know ovulation and pregnancy so this is a time where there's a lot of frustration and i find in this post pill pcos a lot of women start running off to ivf specialists because they're not conceiving uh Mm. they're not falling pregnant and still they're not addressing the underlying root cause and then they start to you kind of get pumped full of hormonal stimulating drugs and uh it doesn't help their long-term health it doesn't help their Mm. they might produce their baby we just talked about this intergenerational or trigenerational effect is that what we really want to pass on exactly no pressure and no and no and no guilt to anyone who has gone down that pathway but the reality is can we heal ourselves to heal the future for our family for our children and that's how i saw my journey it was like okay i've got to heal myself in order to be able to pass on the very best you know epigenetic um, profile to any child that i have and i think when you take that as an opportunity opportunity um, and tackle that piece by piece, it's doable. Um, And we've got to not fall into the fear, but also not fall into the the easy way. Like this Mm. whole 
whole climate of there's a pill for every ill. You know, just take this and that'll happen and just take this drug and that'll happen. And it's like it's not healing. It's not health. Health comes from within and it frustrates me so much that we feel as though we can just bypass natural pathways. You know, we can just recreate this incredible ecosystem we have and be like, ah, don't worry, we'll just take that instead. Mm -hmm. Um, Do the healing. Do the work. It's so worth it. I agree. And, Ash, that leads us to our final um, type of PCOS, which is adrenal PCOS. And I do think that this is um, the least common um, version that I see, but I do think it's kind of increasing in in occurrence really. And the adrenal PCOS is quite descriptive in the sense that, and I'm hoping you're getting the idea that this is usually an issue with chronic stress. So this can be caused by, you know, chronic ongoing stress. It can be from early life exposures and trauma. And also I see it as a bit of an epigenetic change as well um, where, you know, there's a whole bunch of of different things that can sort of go on that leads to having elevated levels of DHEA. Um, And that is what would be particularly diagnostic in this case. And usually um, we would also have elevated other androgens as well, like testosterone and everything else along the way. And the clinical management for adrenal PCOS And I do think that this is probably one of the more tricky sort of versions to address as well. But lifestyle management and stress management is absolutely critical. So managing the stress from all aspects, including, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, um, purpose, connection, joy, regulating your nervous system, you know, all of those sorts of things and addressing whatever those triggers or traumas were in the first place. Um, This is the type of PCOS that I would actually recommend avoiding high-intensity exercise. Um, Other forms of exercise can be absolutely fine, but this is the particular type where I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. And I'd also really recommend um, avoiding stimulants as well um, in the form of coffee, tea, even chocolate, cacao, um, energy drinks and things like that. Um, And then the treatment approach for this, just like um, modulating the excess androgens would be a more adrenally supportive um, sort of focused. Um, so those that might be with herbs like withania or um, ashwagandha. Um, it could be, uh, you know, certain types of B vitamins to help to bring down that excess cortisol production, um, magnesium, you know, th- there's so many other things that I'm trying to think of off the top of my head. But the normal and- anti androgenic options from a supplementation perspective are things like your zinc, licorice, white peony, dim, inositol, as I mentioned, saw palmito, even reishi mushrooms, black cohosh, spearmint, and even green tea. And in some cases, Vitex can be helpful or even cyclical progesterone, but I definitely recommend using those things with guidance. Isn't it interesting how many of um, the foundational recommendations do cross over? Yes. And none of them have talked about a PCOS diet. We've been talking about stress management, lifestyle, you know, modification, exercise. Yes. Obviously, diet is a part of that, but it's not the only part. You know, you're not going to heal it with diet alone. So, um, for me as well, you know, stress plays such a key role in all the others. It mm. plays a key role in, in the inflammation. It plays a key role in insulin resistance. So, yes. um, with this contemporary, you know, busy, rushing 
working woman's lifestyle we have, it's something to consider. Can we start to say no more often? Can we unpack our agendas a fraction? And um, I know you and I look at each other like going, uh, Oh my God, it's so relevant, right? Crazy, <laughs> crazy schedule this year with so much travel and time zone changes and things like that. So, yeah. um, you know, there's no bad time to nurture your adrenal system and to give your adrenals a little bit of love. Um, I know both of us are kind of trying to switch off over the Christmas period because if we don't do that, we're going to start the next year in an absolute, uh, you know, risk factor for so many different things, including immune dysregulation, which, you know, for us is uh, we, we work hard to play play as well and that yeah. means that we need to stay healthy. Um, PCOS is, is not a, a diagnosis that, you know, should scare you. And I, I mm. sort of say this in a way that when I went through my diagnosis, it was so um, affecting. It changed the course mm. of my life. It was terrifying. It was scary. It was devastating. And I wish I knew then what I know now. I wish I yes. had the opportunity to hear some of these things and go, oh my gosh, okay, wow. All right. Like, yeah, cool. Finally, I've got some answer for some of these things. But what can I do now? And I mm. wished I'd had the opportunity to hear this podcast tonight and say, okay, cool. There's so many things here I can do. And, oh, that makes so much more sense. I'm an athlete and I can still have this. And that's just related to this. Okay, what do I do now? You know, it just would be so helpful. So ladies, I hope this has been helpful to you. Mm. I hope that you had a chance to unpack some of those types of PCOS, or if you know someone who's got this, have a chat to them, you know, share this episode with them, um, discuss the approach and direction. If they've just been given the pill, Mm-hmm. Please, or please, please. The have a other chat um, common medical management for this is, you know, obviously oral contraceptives, um, yeah. spironolactane, which is a, um, it's essentially like a synthetic corticosteroid, mm-hmm. um, which is like a competitive sort of antagonist that acts to, essentially, it has this, it's a recognized anti androgenic and can be helpful for acne as a symptom, but also causes a whole bunch of other issues. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, metformin. Um, um, which, you know, is, is helpful in some circumstances, but I do think there's better natural alternatives like, for example, berberine, which I think is so much safer and doesn't deplete B12 and mess with your gut microbiome. And, you know, it can be a very potent um, antimicrobial, so it's obviously to be used with caution and not to be used if you're pregnant, but a really, really great option. Yeah, and it's been proven we don't need metformin to reverse type 2 diabetes. Yes. So if we can reverse a chronic metabolic condition like type 2 diabetes, then, ladies, you can cure PCOS. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest myths, isn't it, is that yeah. it's incurable and that it's going to cause fertility issues. Both of those are the biggest myths around when it comes to PCOS. Um, so, ladies, we really hope that this um, episode was a little bit inspiring in terms of giving you some actionable steps of what you can do to help to support your system if you do have one of the four types of PCOS. And also know that you can absolutely call on us if you do need individualized support as well. Um, If this was a bit overwhelming for you, we completely understand. So, ladies, you have been listening to Wellness Women Radio. We are the Wellness Women, Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston. We are raising the bar for women's health. And until next week, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. 
Austin Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.